0: Thank you for playing for us, Chris, today. Great to hear you playing again. Well, way back in my youth pastor days, I used to take students on what I called uh, adventure trips. Uh, We went on bike trips, uh, camping and canoeing trips, even whitewater rafting. And on one occasion, uh, we added a rock climbing experience to one of these adventure trips. And by rock climbing, I mean climbing up an 85-foot cliff and then rappelling back down using ropes and harnesses. Uh, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. We went with an outfitter and a guide who I think that our youth ministry still work with, and he had all the equipment and all the expertise that needed to teach our group, which were all high school kids along with me and a few other adult uh, volunteers, to do everything to climb and get down safely. So we all got all hooked up with the ropes and the harnesses and climbed up the cliff. It was challenging, but since we had ropes and belayers and stuff, we got tired, you could just hang there and the ropes would hold you. We all made it to the top just fine, so that was fun. And then our guide said it was time to rappel down the cliff. Now, I don't know if you've done that. Anybody here done that before? Maybe you were in the Army or something. Um, but an 85-foot cliff from the ground looking up looks, you know, reasonably high. But when you're on top of the 85-foot cliff... It looks like a thousand feet down. You just came from down there. It looks very, very different. Um, And after explaining what we were going to do and that the ropes uh, we were using, each rope was strong enough to like hold a minivan. He said. For some reason, that sticks in my mind. Probably because I didn't believe it. But he said each rope could hold a a minivan. Then he asked for a volunteer to go first to rappel down, and he looked at me. Now, uh, I don't like heights particularly. I don't think I have a a real phobia about it, but I don't really even like getting up on a chair to change a light bulb. I I, I just, I'm not comfortable with heights. But he looked at me and said, how about you, Pastor Brian? How about you show us the way? And he said it the way that I really couldn't say no. I mean, I was the leader of the trip, so he took me to the edge of the cliff and turned me around with my back facing the cliff, you know, facing certain death, 85 feet. It looked something like this. That's not me, but that's what it looked like, okay? And then he said um, the two words I most did not want him to say. He said, lean back. That's the only way you can, you can really repel. You have to completely trust the ropes and lean back into a sitting position. And I looked back at him and I said, no. <laughs> there were like 20 kids on this trip. They're all watching me. I just said, no. He, said, he thought I was kidding. He said, go ahead, just trust the ropes, lean back. I said, no. I'm not. He goes, trust the ropes. They can each hold a minivan. And I was going, I'm not going to do that. And, and he said, do you want all these kids to think you're chicken? I said, I don't care. <laughs> Finally, I, um, I, I kind of leaned back just enough to drop off the edge of the cliff, but I hung to the ro- clung to the rope like a wounded bat, and they just lowered me, and I scraped the edge of the cliff all the way down. The next kid that went was a 14-year-old freshman girl. And she went down like a Navy SEAL, just bounded all the way down. Well, my problem, of course, was was fear, you know, anxiety. That was what I was wrestling with. I struggled to trust the ropes. I struggled to trust the guide. I struggled to trust the whole process. And we're in a series now. I think we're in the fourth week of a series from the book of Psalms. We're called, called Questioning God. We looked at questions like, where are you, God, in the midst of all the injustice I, we see around us in the world? We, we asked questions like, what's the meaning of my life? Does my life have any meaning when it seems so small and so short, and I even make many mistakes? How do I deal with spiritual depression? Psalm 42, last week. And today, we're asking the question, how do I overcome fear? What does faith look like in a time of fear? We're looking at Psalm 27. So you can look that up in your Bibles, or we'll put it up here on the screens as I read through. But Psalm 27 was written by King David at a time of trouble in his life. Uh, most scholars believe this psalm was written either very early in David's life uh, as king, wh- uh, while he's being pursued by a jealous King Saul. Remember, Saul tried to pin David to the wall using a spear. Uh, or late in his life, when his rebellious son Absalom was leading revolt against him, trying to kill him and take his throne one or the other. But David had lots of times in his life when this psalm could have been written. But let me read through Psalm 27, the whole thing, and then we'll dive in to see what we can learn from it. David's writing. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. first thing I want to uh, talk about as we respond to the psalm or look into the psalm is David talks about faith in a fearful time. Faith in a fearful time. It was just about two years ago, I think, that we all started to hear about this mysterious, uh, strange new virus. About two years. In fact, I remember um, making a kind of a joke about it. We had a friend in our small group at the time who was traveling a lot to China and back every month, I think, And so when we gathered one time um, as a group, I I found a box of masks uh, by chance in a drugstore because they weren't everywhere then. I found this box of masks. I brought it to our small group, and I I teased him when he came. I was going to make him wear a mask because he was traveling from China. Well, it turns out the joke was on me, right? It didn't take long for the threat of COVID-19 to become very, very real. I remember when everything started to shut down, Uh, two years ago or so in in March or so, and we were all told uh, to shelter at home. We'd never heard that phrase before. We were told to shelter at home, and so everything was shut down. Couldn't go to the fitness center, so I started taking lots of walks around my neighborhood. It turns out a lot of other people were doing the same thing, and so you remember how it would go. I'd be out taking a walk, uh, and I'd be on the sidewalk, and 50 yards ahead of me would be somebody walking on the sidewalk heading toward me from my neighborhood. You remember what that was like? they're coming this way, like down the aisle, I'm walking that way, and it was like a Clint Eastwood stare down, right, they're coming this way, I'm going, we knew somebody was going to have to move, because, you know, the the virus and everything, we were all scared, we didn't know how it worked, and so they'd walk, if you wait, you know, if they're older than me, I should probably walk over there, if it's a lady, I should probably change sides of the street, but if they have a dog, they they should move, because I'm, and so eventually one of us would move, we did that because of anxiety, Because of fear, we had this invisible enemy, and none of us really knew how it worked. It was in the air everywhere. We didn't know how it worked. Verse one, he says, The Lord, and he's using the name Yahweh here, Jehovah, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So David begins the psalm by affirming three things in that one verse about faith in a time of fear. First, he says, The Lord is my light. Now the word used here for light in Hebrew usually refers to the morning sun, the light of the morning sun as the day breaks. And it's symbolic throughout the Bible of truth. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If we jump to the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In John 8, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, throughout the Bible, light is symbolic of truth because like light, truth disperses darkness. Like light, truth reveals, shows us who God is and who we are in response to God. And like light, truth makes our way clear, makes our path clear. C.S. Lewis famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but but because by it I see everything else. He says, the Lord is my light. Secondly, he says, the Lord is my salvation. Now the word salvation here carries the meaning of deliverance. And David is most likely thinking about literal, physical deliverance from his enemies. He's facing real armies, real people trying to harm him. And he's thinking about being delivered. And he looks; back, he's th- thinking back into his life of his other experiences of being delivered. In 1 Samuel 17, right before running onto the battlefield as a young man to confront the giant Goliath, David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I'm sure that's what David was thinking. But from our perspective, now having the New Testament, having the story of Christ, We see salvation and deliverance primarily as spiritual in nature, that we find our salvation through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4 we read, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved or delivered. So David says, The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. And thirdly, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. I've mentioned before that back in November, Lorene and I visited our youngest son, Canaan, who is now uh, living in Malta, on the island of Malta. And while we were there with him, we visited the ancient fortified city of Medina, it's called. It's an amazing place. Uh, The island's very small, but this is a a fortified ancient city, more than 4,000 years old. It's where many scholars believe the Apostle Paul actually lived for a short time after being shipwrecked there. You can read that story in Acts chapter 28. The city's built on a hill. You can see it from far away, and it's surrounded by a series of walls that are some at least 30 feet high and some 16 feet thick. Ancient walls, rebuilt over and over again. It's a fortified city, a stronghold used to defend that island. David was a king. David was a warrior. He possessed both personal strength, military experience, yet he finds his stronghold, he says, his security in the Lord. So David's living in a fearful time. And when he says, whom shall I fear? Or of whom shall I be afraid? He's asking a kind of rhetorical question. Because he's actually, I believe, acknowledging A real circumstance of real fear. Verse 2, he says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Perhaps here he's remembering as a young man encountering Goliath who threatened to kill him, remember, and feed his carcass to the birds of the air. But instead, it was Goliath who fell before David's sling. Verse 3, Though an army encamp against me, If you read the story of David's life, he fought many, many battles against many enemy armies. He may be thinking about the armies of the Philistines or the Moabites or the Amalekites, maybe even the army of his rebellious son Absalom. But he says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now David had real enemies. He faced real anxiety and real fear, and he says, yet I will be confident. How can he say this? Because he believed that his God, Yahweh, Jehovah, was greater than his enemies. So he says, therefore, I have confidence. It makes me ask the question, what or who are our enemies today? What are the foes that assail us, that attack us? What do we fear today? I saw an article online this week about the, from the American Psychological Association who called the year 2020 the most stressful, fearful year on record. I don't know how they measure these things. I don't know how far back they go. But they said that rampant anxiety, quote, rampant anxiety has become a national mental health emergency, and it didn't change much in 2021. The top fears they list that people reported, loved ones dying or become serious, becoming seriously ill, mass shootings, not having enough money for retirement, hate crimes, government corruption, and widespread civil unrest, and they listed several more. We may not face an army uh, trying to hunt us down, as David was facing, but we do have reasons to feel anxious and fearful. In fact, I think we've kind of lived the last two years like me, standing on the edge of that cliff, being told to lean back. That's what it's felt like for months on end for many of us. We may fear the virus. We may fear other diseases. We may fear those who we perceive to be political enemies. We may fear the pervasive cultural attack on our faith. David says, My heart shall not fear. And I think that points us to what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament when he writes, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? So David begins by acknowledging the source of his fear, by acknowledging his anxiety, but reminds himself that his faith tells him that God, Yahweh, Jehovah, is greater than his enemies and is greater than his fear. Therefore, he has confidence. And when we look at these things, the forces around us, the enemies that we face that cause us fear and anxiety, we can know, Paul says, that nothing Separates us from the love of Christ. Therefore, we too have confidence. We can have faith in a fearful time. The second thing I see in this psalm is a faith that seeks the Lord. A faith that seeks the Lord. Last week, uh, I talked a little bit about how uh, this, uh, this two years of COVID uh, has robbed us often of the blessing of, of coming together as a community for worship. There were months where we had to be completely shut down. Um, and when we reopened again, uh, The same number of people are not able to be here for all kinds of different reasons. And I talked about how that's been discouraging in many ways for you all and for some of us as pastoral staff. Well, this past week I was at a board meeting for our denomination uh, in Orlando. And one of the issues that was talked about there was the skyrocketing number of pastors in our denomination... Just in our denomination, uh, who are experiencing burnout and depression due to the stresses of the COVID season. Having to close down in person worship, having to learn how to preach to an empty room looking only at a camera, uh, being criticized for any decision made, mask, no mask, all that stuff. And for many pastors, it's just been too much. Dozens and dozens, and I was not aware of this till this gathering, dozens and dozens who have quit. And just one out. One even said, I'll do anything else. I'll greet at a Walmart. Just put me anywhere else. At the same time, I would want you to know this is what our pastoral team would say. Sure, it's been stressful. There's been discouragements. But there have been great blessings that have come along the way. We've learned new skills, we've learned how to do things online, we've learned how to project ourselves uh, out into the community for those who cannot attend in person. We've seen God at work in many, many new kinds of ways. We've seen extraordinary generosity from our church family, and we've been reminded of the precious gift of community. Last week after the service, I was chatting with Sarah, uh, our organist, and she reminded me of how good it was just about a year ago when we opened up again. And had in-person worship after months of having nothing in person. And even though there were only 25 or 30 people in this room, the joy and the emotional joy was to hear people singing in person again. To be together with God's people again was a great blessing. And we've been reminded of the importance of that blessing, of being in the presence of God's people. That's what David's talking about here in verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So David's in the midst of a fearful time. He's in trouble, and he, but he suddenly changes his perspective here, if you notice that. In fact, the shift here is so dramatic that many scholars think this that Psalm 27 is actually two Psalms stuck together. One that's written in a time of trouble and one that's written in a time of joy. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think David is simply shifting his focus for a spiritual purpose. So here you would think he would say, one thing I have asked of the Lord. Get me out of this, right? Isn't that how we often pray? Just get me out of the situation. Remove my enemies. But that's not what he does here. At least not yet. Rather, he says, one thing I've asked for, one thing I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And to gaze upon the beauty, that word means kindness, delightfulness of the Lord. So what does it mean to seek after the Lord? To dwell in the house of the Lord? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? The Hebrew word used here for seek means to desire, to require, to beg for. The word dwell means to remain, to sit down, to stay, or as we might say in our language, to hang out for a while. David's reorienting his heart and mind from his circumstances, from stressful situations and enemies, to intentionally and passionately seek the presence of God. To dwell not in his, in his anxiety and fear. And We do tend to do that, don't we? We tend to dwell in our anxieties and fears. But he seeks to dwell somewhere else, to dwell in the presence of his God and to see the beauty of God. Why would he say this at this time? Why would he shift his focus? Well, I think we see in the psalm that he does so for a couple of reasons. First is to find in the Lord's presence a kind of protection. In verse 5 he says, For he will hide me in his shelter. The word shelter means a hiding place. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now, in Scripture, these are all images of safety and peace. And I think points us toward what the New Testament tells us, what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 when he writes, Do not be anxious or fearful, about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So David seeks the Lord because in the Lord's presence he finds safety and protection. Secondly, in the Lord's presence he finds joy. Verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now notice, the enemies are still out there. That situation has not changed. David is simply anticipating ultimate victory over his enemies. He trusts the strength and deliverance of God. And so he's able to celebrate with joy the victory that is yet to come. And we see the same thing on nearly every page of the New Testament. Paul writes that even in the face of death itself, 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of his fearful circumstances, David seeks the Lord. It's a faith in a fearful time and a faith that seeks the Lord. And thirdly, we see in this psalm a faith that waits, that waits for the Lord. I'm going to read the rest of this psalm Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Notice the psalm is no longer talking about God. He is now talking to God. So he shifted to this now has become a prayer. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation. I want to pick out three things that David mentions as he finishes this psalm, three things he prays for. I encourage you to, to, encourage you to compare how David prays to how, how we pray or how you might pray. First, he says, teach me your way. Teach me your way. This is a very simple phrase, but, but really kind of, kind of astonishing when you think about it. I mean, this is King David. This is the man after God's own heart, the man who gave us the the great book of psalms 150 psalms we have through the centuries to know how god is how god works who god is to ask questions and he's still learning david is still learning he says teach me your way he's still willing to learn even in a time of struggle and fear and this by the way is why we're doing this series questioning god we've seen how david's willing to voice deep and hard questions And how how he searches the word of God and the heart of God for answers. And this is how we learn. This is when we learn in the midst of a fearful time. And David becomes our role model. He says, teach me your way. Teach me about yourself. Teach me how I can understand and know you and experience you even now. The second thing he says is, I believe. I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, from David's perspective, I think he believes God, again, will deliver him physically from his enemies and preserve his life. I think he believes God is going to protect him as he did when he was a shepherd boy, from the lion and the bear, as he did with Goliath when he slayed the enemy. I believe that's what David is looking for. But from our perspective, I think the psalm is pushing us to look ahead to the promises we have in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, those things that cause us fear and anxiety, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 1 Peter, Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, I believe. I will see the land of the living. And the third thing he says is, wait for the Lord. Now notice, I think David shifts again here a little bit, his focus, his perspective. Here he's either talking to himself to remind himself or he's speaking directly to us. All these centuries later, as his readers, he says, wait for the Lord. And the word used here in the Hebrew means to wait, to eagerly look for, to hope, or to expect. Now, just a word about waiting. We live in a culture that is, um, I think we could say, we're sort of addicted to speed, addicted to speed and to convenience. And we, we hate to wait. In general as a culture. I hate to wait, really for anything. I was uh, this past week just one night in a hotel in Orlando for this meeting. next morning I uh, got up and there was a, a, one of these little continental breakfast places. You know, in the hotel you go in, there's, you know, uh, bagels and, and fruit and stuff. And so I went in and I didn't really know what I wanted to eat, but there were some bagels there and there's one of those toasters, you know, those big, those big machines that have the, the grid that's turning inside like that. So I cut a bagel, put it on the rack and it, it, it It sucked the bagels in. It was going to toast them up, and I'm standing there. The bagels go in. I'm standing there. So slow. Let's go. I mean, I was trying. Is there a knob you can turn for faster? But then it won't toast us. But I was. I was noticed how impatient I was, just waiting for a bagel. Why can't we toast these things faster? Right? We can make microwave rice. My wife and I microwave rice in 90 seconds now. Used to take a lot longer to make rice. Or take. Think about information. Now we get information at the speed of light on Google. I've told the younger guys and pastors, my preparation time, uh, uh, Google has helped cut my preparation time. I used to have to actually look in reference books to find scripture passages, look in my Hebrew-Greek concordance to find the Greek meanings of different words. Now, boom, 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 I can get it in seconds on Google. And that's a good thing in ways, but in some ways, maybe not so good. I'm reading a book right now that Jeff recommended. I mentioned it last week called After Doubt, written by A.J. Swoboda. And he pointed out in this book, it's really about uh, deconstructing faith and reconstructing faith, but he points out that way back in the first centuries, when the very earliest believers in Jesus, the people that Paul led to Christ in, in Ephesus or in Corinth, if they had a question, maybe a hard question, about spiritual things. Maybe they had questions about suffering, about faith, about death. They had to send letters by letter carriers. There's no mail system in those days. They had to send a letter with their questions, with a courier, to travel across the Mediterranean Sea to go by foot or on horseback to find the apostle Paul, deliver the letters if they could find him, and then wait for him to write and then bring it all the way back. Sometimes it would take a year for a letter to get to a distant city in the Roman Empire and to come back. And that whole year, they're waiting for an answer to their questions, to serious questions, to hard questions. And I hadn't really thought about that. And in that year when they're waiting, all they're doing is wrestling with what they know, what they've been given, they're praying, and they're talking together about their questions. And Soboda writes, we no longer have any need to wait for theological answers, or to pray patiently. We no longer have need to be patient for the long-awaited voice of God through prayer or letters from the Apostle Paul. We can get our answers immediately. We rush to podcasts, to books, to quick texts, or we YouTube it. But here's David's point, I think. Waiting and hope are connected. The same word can be used for both, waiting and hope. In fact, as I thought about this, you cannot have hope by definition without waiting. You may have to think about that for a while. You cannot have hope without the experience of waiting. So what do we do with our questions? What do we do with our fears? What do we do with our anxieties? I came across this little illustration this week, and it, it, it was profound to me. Uh, in winemaking, and I know, I know nothing about wine, uh, in winemaking, a wine's quality is directly related to the quality of the grapes, and that makes some sense to me. The quality of the grapes is directly related to the quality of the vines and their roots. That also makes sense to me. The question is, how does one grow healthy grapes to produce good wine in a harsh environment? And this is why it did not make sense to me at first. The winemaker knows that he or she must not water the grapevines. Must, must intentionally not water the grapevines. Because if the vines are watered by sprinklers or other artificial means, the roots are not forced to go deep into the soil. And you get, a, you get an inferior tasting grape and inferior tasting wine. But when water is intentionally withheld... The roots must go down deeper and deeper to find sources of refreshment. And that produces good wine. So when we wonder why God allows times of fear or anxiety or questioning, David is teaching us through this ancient psalm that during those times, it might just be that God is allowing us calling us, pushing us to grow deeper in the soil of faith, deeper in the soil of prayer, deeper in the soil of His Word. That part of waiting is questioning. And part of waiting is trusting. And part of waiting is hoping. And in our waiting, we grow. In waiting, our roots grow deep into the truth, of the presence of God, the God who is our stronghold, the God who is our salvation. Psalm 27. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for these ancient words from a man who knew all about fear and anxiety. We thank you for allowing us and inviting us to ask our questions, even our hard questions. The questions that we We struggle to even verbalize. Thank you for being the God who is our light, our salvation, and our stronghold, especially during times of fear. Teach us your way. Teach us to seek, to wait, and to hope. It's in your name that we pray.